Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. Welcome into Let's Hear It. We've got another edition. You found us. We're so glad to have you. And Mr. Brown, good to see you. Good to have you here. Good, good to say, yeah, you found us. It's like it's like our listeners are Hansel and Gretel. They're waiting. They They're just, just they no, no no they just wander in the woods <laughs> and then they stumble upon a little cabin and inside are these two guys who are jibber jabbering with each other. They're walking around. They're maybe going to work out. They're on their walking commute. They're doing whatever. They're just waiting, trying to find. Let's hear. Right. There it is. What's up, Hansel? What's up, Gretel? Welcome. You coming you to the so uh, here you here it is. You've done it again. You say it, you say it in the interview, but here we have a new favorite. So we have a long list of uh, bests because this is here we go. Set up what you've you've done here for us, Eric, and then we're all gonna have to. There's so much to talk about with this one. We're gonna have to come back. Okay, this is a, maybe it's a bit of a long setup. We have heard Trabian Shorters on this show before. Trabian, who runs the Be Me organization, is a former vice president at the Knight Foundation, mm -hmm. gave a keynote speech at the Communications Network Conference last the year before last, which we played. And it's amazing. Yeah. I've seen Trabian in person, obviously at that event. I've also participated in a number of workshops that he has presented. And every time I listen to Trabian, I learn something. I was so excited to be able to engage him directly in a conversation. If you have heard the Trabian speech at Comnet, great. I still think you should listen to this yeah. conversation because, I mean, I, me, I'm, I, I really try to learn, and sometimes I have to do things a few times before it sinks in. Mm -hmm. I've been with Trabian a whole bunch of times, and each time I learn something that is that like doubles my my understanding of something and. Trabian is one of the people who has been at the forefront of this thing called asset framing, in which you talk about people in the in terms of their aspirations, what they have to what they bring to the table, mm -hmm. what they have to offer, the things that they care about and the things that they want to achieve, instead of talking about people in terms of what they don't have or what they've been denied or that kind of thing. And and because Trabian is so smart hmm. and he is a student of brain science and he is a former, he's a technology guy, understands what that does to your brain when you talk about people in terms of their aspirations, their hopes and dreams, instead of what you think they don't have and what that does. So he is a part of a movement that is changing how we think and how we talk and how Truly, our brains are formed when we think about people who are trying to make the world better or who deserve better than they've gotten. That's Trabian Shorters, 
And that's all I have to say. So you can find him bmecommunity.org. You can find him tradebeinshorters.com. Um, you know, in his bio, among the things that you've said, he's also a retired tech entrepreneur. Did you know that he's a New York Times bestselling author? Yes, he is. <laughs> and uh, He's an amazing guy. I, I just, I worship the water he walks on. Just, again, another essay in generosity here at Let's Hear It. He's, he's so gracious talking this through. So let's let's listen. This is Trebian Shorters on Let's Hear It, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest this week is Trebian Shorters. And I just have to say, I am, I always say I'm excited about an interview, but I don't think I've ever been as excited as this interview. Trabian uh, started the Be Me community. He was formerly a vice president at the Knight Foundation. And Trabian, you have become uh, such a, a, a guiding light for me as I try to think about how to communicate. I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, certainly my pleasure. Looking forward. Yeah, so I guess I would uh, I guess I would call myself a Trabianite uh, because uh, since you let's see now uh, I became aware of your work when I was uh, as associated with the communications network you helped put together mm -hmm. the issue on racism that the communications network did and then you came to speak to us at Miami uh, two years ago. Mm -hmm. And you started talking about asset mm -hmm. framing and everything you said made total sense to me. And I felt almost a, a pang of shame for not seeing it myself sooner. Can you just talk about how you've been thinking about communications in the last, obviously, two years, but uh, more than that, since your time at night, I understand. No, I appreciate that, Eric. So no reason for any of us to feel ashamed. Uh, and let me illustrate why. So asset framing is actually based in an understanding of how cognition works for human beings. The fact of the matter is we were all taught that we are rational decision makers, that we can weigh the pros and cons and choose that, those things that are most beneficial to us relatively objectively. Like that, that's what we were all taught. It just turns out that when uh, cognitive scientists really look at how our mental processes work, that is not how we make our judgments. It turns out that all of us are primed by whatever narratives and whatever associations are available to us. And that priming tells our minds which information to credit and which information to totally ignore. So when it's time to do our objective analysis, fact of the matter is we've already screened out all types of data that we're just not going to pay any attention to. And then whatever is left, we do weigh objectively, but be clear that what is left is not the full picture ever, right? All of us have been operating out of this cognitive illusion that we're being fair and balanced because we are fair and balanced with what is left within our frame. But our frames tend to be very limited, right? And so asset framing is about defining people by their aspirations and their contributions before noting their challenges. And the reason why we specifically say that if you're going to do any type of work that involves really decision-making, like if you're going to do any, any sort of work where you want to approximate your reality, then you have to be able to asset frame as well as deficit frame. And what has been happening in our social impact space is we only use half of a narrative. We use the deficit side of a narrative. And so all the information that is available to our subconscious mind is negative information. And because that's all that it has to draw on, all it can do is react in a defensive posture subconsciously, right? 
And so that is the leaning of the social impact space. We start off with problem statements. We try to identify crises. We rally folks through, you know, essentially existential threat. Like we're, we're very sort of fix, repair, survival, crisis, you know, savior oriented space. And because of that, we have overprimed our minds with those threatening inputs. And we are unaware of the other side of the narratives of the people that we, you know, the people issues and places that we say we want to help. And it turns out that if all you have is an unbalanced picture, then you're going to make unbalanced choices. But I just want to say to you and anyone else listening, this process was not one of your creation. You are not choosing to only focus on the negatives. What is happening is you're being fed the negatives on a regular basis, consistently. And the way our subconscious minds work is they, uh, we access whichever information is easiest for us to recall. And it's literally not a matter of whether these are things you believe. It's a matter of whether you can recall them, right? And so we're all, you know, we can all recall sort of the negative stuff. And when you get right down to it, it's difficult for us to recall, you know, are the college graduation rates of, you know, Hispanic youth. Who, who has that available to them? Who knows, for instance, that uh, when Gates did a study years ago, they found that folks of Hispanic heritage over-index for their uh, appreciation of college. Like as some, somewhere in the neighborhood of 84% of Hispanics say that higher education is important to, to success, um, whereas in the national average, it's in the high 70s. So as a population, you can generalize that Hispanics place a high value on higher education. But how many of us know that when we're thinking about this population, right? How many of us know that African-Americans serve and protect this country at the highest rates out of all, you know, men in this country? Like, if we don't have these narratives of dutifulness and contribution and achievement, then all we can draw upon are the narratives of deficit and failure and threat. But those are not the whole story, right? So I just, I just want to maybe, uh, I'm sensitive to the fact that you and others might feel bad that you weren't aware of how to apply asset framing, but I will at least share with you, you're in a cultural environment that is built on deficit frames. And there's a ton of unintended consequences to deficit frames that are actually socially detrimental. Well, you know, this is really interesting. There are so many ways that we could go with this conversation, but it, as you had have said in the many of the workshops that I've been lucky enough to participate that you've led, going back, you say, draw upon Danny Kahneman's work with um, Thinking Fast and Slow, that 95% of the decisions that we make go around our conscious mind. So as you say, we're making decisions without even knowing it. And those decisions are created through images and experiences, whether they're something we saw in a movie or something we saw in on television or on the news mm -hmm. or something like that. And it is creating these decision-making frameworks in our brains without us knowing about it. And so, boy, oh boy, we should not be shocked that we think the police are the ones who solve crimes and help people and that certain people are the ones who are criminals or they, it's, we've been watching this for our entire lives or- right where an institution says that its job is to solve problems. Well, you got to go find a problem to solve if you're a problem <laughs> solver, as opposed to support communities who are trying, go have a good job, yep, go to school, yep. raise a family, all of those things. So you we know, are in the middle uh, of this, this, uh, this social experience that shouldn't be, be surprising. And you've been talking about this for a while, and now this is coming out in full flower. 
How does that, you know, how are you responding to that? What is that, what is that experience like for you saying, I told you so? Well, um, yeah, I, I, I try not to say I told you so, but one of the <laughs> things that, one, no, seriously, one of the things that is pregnant in this moment is I think it's increasingly clear to the public and to leaders, something that Jacqueline Novogratz uh, said earlier this year, that our old institutions have run their course for this interdependent world. The old ways that we think about activating just are not effective. And, there, and there's no reason to believe that operating out of the modes that we had in 1967 are going to work as we get further and further into the 21st century, right? So we're at a tipping point, I think, historically and globally in terms of how we think about society itself. And I know that might sound grand, but I stand, I'll stand by it. Like if you, if you, if you want to push and pull on it, a simple fact of the matter is in the United States, we are in the last generation of white majority. That's never happened before in the history of the country. Uh, and the narratives that we all grew up around, which centered white men specifically, well, there's a reason to believe that an increasing number of Americans will say, well, we need to add to that narrative. Like if, the, the story of America is not the story of just white men. And it's also not a story where everybody in the nation is an extension of white men. Whether you're a woman, whether you're a person of color, whatever your uh, core, core identity is, it is pretty easy to predict that centering more identities will be part of the American narrative or the country will just fall into ruin. Like, <laughs> you, you, you just can't, we're not going to be able to operate exclusively the way that we had before. So because of that, the utility of asset framing, I think, is becoming clearer to people, right? When you're defining all of us, and I literally mean all of us, not just people of color, like when we're defining each other by our aspirations and our contributions, then it becomes much easier to see where systemic interference is thwarting those efforts. So for instance, if I had no other message to your listeners, it would be this. Make every effort you can to not center stigmatization as your core engagement tool. <laughs> like, don't, don't make stigmatizing people how you motivate, how you engage, how you raise money, uh, how you fight for change. Because it turns out that when something is stigmatized, uh, you subconsciously associate it with threat, and you're always trying to avoid, control, or kill things that are innately threatening. That's, that's a subconscious priming we have. It's part of our survival instinct. And starting off with these, you know, here's what's wrong, here's what's broken, here's the disparity, here's the gap, here's how X, Y, Z is essentially a threat to the larger society. Starting off from that narrative, all you can do is work to avoid that threat, control that threat, or kill that threat. You're never actually going to be inclined to, first of all, recognize the aspirations and then work for people to realize and fulfill their aspirations. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree with you. It's funny because um, my wife and I are out of town and we saw a little chipmunk uh, in, in the woods. And mm -hmm. I was reminded of the photograph of a rat that you put <laughs> up uh, during the workshops that you do. And th this is kind of a mangy looking rat. It's not the world's nicest right. looking rat, but it's a rat. And mm -hmm everyone's response to it was the same, was that's disgusting. I want to control, capture, kill, dominate, el eliminate. I want this rat, you know, dead. And we mm -hmm. looked at the chipmunk and the chipmunk is, to our minds, cute. It's got a little, right. it's, a, it's a rat, it's a cousin of the rat, but <laughs> it has right. a cute little 
white stripe. <laughs> and the difference between this thing that we all hate and would be disgusted by and us yeah. going, oh, look at that nice little animal in nature is a cute little white stripe. And mm. we watched on the, you know, Chip and Dale on the cartoons or whatever, that if this is our mental models that have been shaped for us by all of those things that we see around us. And mm. those animals are fundamentally the same. There are a yeah. couple of rodents and one is yeah, right, disgusting right, right. and one is cute as hell. And yeah. I, I mean, that was, I was just talking about it like, oh, I'm having a Trapian Shorters moment because of that chipmunk. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I, I also think that as you are trying to help folks understand that every time they say low income, this or disadvantaged that, or that we are, you know, that that's what we're reinforcing. And, yeah, and that's I, yeah. Please go ahead. So, Eric, a, a, a really important point because when folks are first trying to understand asset framing, they sometimes make the mistake to conflate it to being using positive language. Right? We're only going to describe things in the most rose-colored, friendly, <laughs> term, and, and it absolutely is not that. It really like so. So, this is a good uh, point to maybe uh, emphasize that. Asset framing is not about ignoring problems. In fact, the, the working definition is to define people by their aspirations and contributions before noting their challenges. So you're going to note all the challenges. That is part of the framing for asset framing. But maybe an important thing for us as communicators to remember is framing is all about which information you introduce first. That's what frames an argument. That's what frames a case. That's what frames what your, what your mind will consider and how your mind will consider them. So when you lead with things that are essentially stigmatizing, then you've primed a stigma response in yourself subconsciously. When you lead with things that are essentially uh, value adding, then you've primed that response. And the funny thing is uh, we work with folks who, who like are intentional about how to stop dehumanization, how to counter dehumanization. And the fact of the matter is when you asset frame something, you have defused hum uh, that whole dehumanization right from the very beginning. Rats don't have aspirations, right? Rat, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, not not that we would recognize, you know. what I mean, um, so when you're when you're speaking of people by their limits and their challenges, uh, marginalized, low income, that, those things never say what those people's aspirations are, and so you've never associated a, a, an essentially human characteristic with them. You've never acknowledged that they too have aspirations, so you've set them up at minimally as an object in the narrative and possibly as the threat in the, you know, the, the villain in the story. Right. And so the act of asset framing automatically grafts onto people, actually doesn't even graft on automatically recognizes in people, their aspirations and their contributions. And that act makes it hard for your mind to dehumanize them. It's an important um, thing for people to understand asset framing is about defining people by their aspirations and contributions. It's not about ignoring their challenges. You absolutely must address and speak about their challenges. Just don't define. And it's not just about changing a few words. And we're going to take a quick break and okay. come back. And Trevi and I, you and I can plot about how to build for a, a powerful future that actually uh, engages people's aspirations, diffuses the um, polarized society that we live in, and maybe a few other things makes every day an ice cream day. So we'll be right back with Trabian Shorters after this very short break. 
You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. And I'm back with Trabian Shorters, the head of the BME community. Trabian, would you just, uh, before we solve the all the world's problems, can you just talk a little bit about BME, how you got it started and and, sure. uh, and what kind of work that you're doing right now? Sure. Uh, BME community is a very powerful experience that we have been growing since 2013 uh, when I was vice president of the Knight Foundation. We created it there as, as a project, really a project in uh, engagement. And the results we got were so fascinating um, that we spun it out promptly. And I've been working with others to build the BME community ever since. Our mission is to build more caring and prosperous communities inspired by Black people. That's our you know, North Star. But the ways that we approach it are rooted in this understanding of cognition and decision-making and social science and racial narrative, if you could combine all those things, right? And so BME does three things principally. One, we curate networks of Black leaders and teach them these skills and make sure that they're engaged in advancing a narrative about Black people that is defining us by our aspirations and contributions. That's one. Second thing we do is we take the insights from Nobel laureates and research psychologists and social psychologists and social scientists, and we teach asset framing to the heads of social impact networks, you know, foundations, journalism networks, social impact funds, uh, and the like. And the third thing that we do is we started a campaign based on what our leaders, our Black leaders, have said they believe are core aspirations in the Black community. And the campaign uh, is called Live, Own, Vote, Excel, right? Black people in America want the freedom to live, own, vote, and excel like anyone else in this country. That Those are overarching objectives. And it just so happens that those four letters spell out the word love. And so the campaign we call the Agenda for Black Love, and we look for people who are willing to support the idea that living, owning, voting, and excelling should be rights for African-Americans as well as anybody else in this democracy. And those who are willing to take a stand on that side of the democratic question, just to declare something you would think might be obvious, but actually deserves some declaration when you look at what's been happening, right? But yeah, we want folks to, to declare that they too believe those democratic freedoms should extend to Black folks. And then once you do, uh, we can engage you in activities that actually help folks to live, own, vote, and excel. But those are our three pieces. Uh, our, our sort of fellowship leadership network, our asset framing training work, and the campaign for Black love. I'm going to make you go out on a limb, or I'm going to ask you a question that has just been on my mind a lot since I've been listening to you talk. <laughs> you seem to be on to something that's, frankly, that's new. Now, you're, ta- you're putting together, obviously, Danny Kahneman's writing and understanding, one of the Nobel prize in economics on, in yep. decision-making because he understood yep. how mental models work. He didn't yep. then, uh, to my understanding, turn that into kind of that's the social communications 
specific work about that. And obviously Jacqueline Novogratz has been talking about this, but you feel, it feels to me like you're putting together the pieces of a puzzle in a particular way. Yeah. Um, was there a moment for you when these things kind of clicked into place? Yeah, actually. So here's, here's the fact of the matter. I, I, I was born and raised a tech nerd. Like I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm of the generation that, that where the, you know, the PC was invented. So, so I grew up being a computer nerd uh, and uh, I learned how to be a programmer uh, by taking code and typing it back into a PDP 11 mainframe in, in my high school. And then I learned how to hack by the system operator who was a senior in that same high school who was part of a hacker sort of club. My introduction to systems theory then was this way. It was, it was getting involved in computers, computer systems. And as, as that technology grew and evolved, so did my understanding grow and evolve. The reason why that backstory is useful is because the way I learned hacking is hacking is understanding a system well enough to get it to do something that it wasn't designed to do. Right. And so to my eyes, what we're trying to do is hack the culture so that we can evolve it to the next phase that it needs to be in. We, you know, the country is kind of stuck a little bit, like we're, we're, we're treading uh, or maybe spinning our wheels a little bit on old narratives in a totally new context where those narratives are not serving us. Like we, we keep falling off, you know, going off the road and ending up in, you know, COVID-19 ditches and other things because the way that the ways that we're thinking the world works is not how it works. And even think about the last, what, three national elections, you know, polls always tell us who's going to win by what margins. And then they're always wrong. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's very clear to me that as Jacqueline said, old institutions have run the course. Like we're not, we, we don't have the proper mental models for the, for the context that we're in. And so asset framing is a way of hacking us, hacking the ways that we think about decision-making so that we can make better decisions. And the beauty of it is it's not based on making up anything. It's literally based on how our decision-making process actually works. So understanding that system well enough to teach you how you're making stumbles so that you can then adjust and see full pictures and make better decisions because you have better information, right? And so, yeah. And so that that's uh, the, the, your question about the moment. The moment came when we had done a couple rounds of Be Me when I was still part of Knight Foundation. And the Heinz Endowment and the Open Society Foundation reached out to us and said, if we fund you, will you take this program to our cities? And I'm working at a, you know, $2 billion endowed foundation. So the fact that they were offering us money was kind of odd. Like we don't, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but you know, that, that was, that was a clear sign that we were onto something that the philanthropic market could value, but it ended up being even more valuable, honestly, than we anticipated. Uh, I, I remember training the folks at Heinz foundation, including Grant Oliphant yeah. in asset framing. And Grant was very candid with his team uh, at the conclusion of the training. And he he told us that this was the most powerful training on equity that he had ever uh, experienced. He, he he saw the immediate application of it and how it could be transformative. And as we've worked with a number of different communication shops inside foundations and, st and strategy shops inside foundations, we've seen them do everything from change their grant application form so that it's not starting off with problem statement right. to actually changing their mission statement so that it is focused on aspirations 
rather than being focused on deficits, right? I think the next era or generation of social impact work will be focused on aspirations and, and shared aspirations. And we'll have to define people by those things, which will make it much easier for us to work together across our races, classes, and genders. And, then, and then I know you didn't ask this, but let me add one other important point, which I don't get to say very often, but I think is important. Beamy community is a little bit like Chinatown, right? In, in that we are Black, we are Black-owned, we're Black-operated, we like being Black, we're cool with being Black. Like, we don't have a problem with Black. Black is good, <laughs> right? But everybody goes to Chinatown, right? Like, it, it's not, we don't believe that being Black means being exclusive. We believe that being Black means being proud of our aspirations and contributions and helping others to understand how they too can be proud, not only of our aspirations, but of their own, right? And the relationship, this is the controversial part. Uh, oh, good. The relationship that America has with Black people is one of abuse in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I remember there's, you know, a, a bunch of Black comedians who joke about the fact that America, of course, is good for Black people in one way, but hostile in other ways. But here's the reality. When we think about how to go forward, asset framing says that you don't define anyone by their deficits. You define them by their aspirations and their contributions. So even when we think about this nation, as a Black leader, I still believe we have to define America by its aspirations and its contributions. That's, that's the definitional thing. Then we have to address all these terrible things that have been done to make this nation fall short of its, its highest promise, right? The idea of liberty and justice for all. America does not deliver liberty and justice for all, even if that is our highest aspiration. And so maybe a way of understanding asset framing is recognizing that even as a black leader who works with black folks who are working on social justice all the time, even in that context, when I asset frame, I still say America must be defined by its beacon light and this idea that you can have a society that actually ensures liberty and justice and is founded upon fairness and equality. Like, like to have to have that as a as the way that we think about this nation is a strong position for a black leader to take. But because it is asset framed, I can then say that's America's aspiration. But let's look at all the ways that America has not fulfilled its identity, like its highest aspirations for itself. And let's correct all the things that stop us from being who we say we aspire to be and who we would be most proud to be as a nation. And I feel like we can address that honestly because we asset frame, right? Um, I don't feel like me being Black means that I have to be anti the country that I'm born in. I do believe that me being Black means that, uh, and being born in America, means that any argument for America as a land of justice or liberty has to be true for me too, or it's just not true. That makes total sense. Now, here's the how we solve, or yeah, not we, but here's here's what I what makes me optimistic. Mm -hmm. And and let me know what you think about that. Which is that right now at this moment, needless to say, people are expressing themselves about race, about culture, in ways that they they haven't in 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 a. It, they have in many ways all along, but now it seems to be um, coming together in a different way that mm -hmm. involves more young people, more people, uh, white and black together, uh, mm -hmm. and that people are calling for changes in the media, in the arts, in education, in what we're seeing, that 
we need to be able to tell stories that are relevant to this next generation and that those stories mm. are aspirational and asset framing and that that mm. could, if we're able to actually p- pull this off, shape the mental models of the next generation in ways mm. that uh, undo or at least respond to what we're experiencing right now, this deep polarization. Should be no yep. wonder that some people think that masks are some kind of plot by the left and so on, <laughs> that their brains just believe it in the face mm-hmm. of evidence to the contrary. And mm-hmm. to do that, holding these huge institutions of our culture responsible for how they are shaping our mental models becomes a paramount goal. Does that... Yeah. Does that am I am I interpreting you know you and everything else I'm seeing? I, I totally agree with that interpretation, even to the extent that I've had conversations with my friends in 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 uh, news journalism, and I've been very candid that the news media is a co-author in the narrative of racial racial hatred in the United States, co-author and a co-conspirator in the cover-up related to the consequences of that. Uh, I don't believe that journalists that news media can can credibly say that all we do is report the news if you understand that priming is how we all learn about and frame our world. So the fact that the news media has a predilection for reporting things a certain way and in particularly displaying people of color 90% of the time in strictly negative uh, ways, well, if that's what you're doing, you're building a deep set of associations, right? When I was growing up, in, on the evening news, I can remember how many times the word uh, terrorist followed the word Muslim on the evening news. Like if, if, if Muslims came up in the evening news, it was not about uh, celebrations of Ramadan. It was not about uh, things that the mosque was organizing communities to do for the benefit of others. It was never about anything positive that someone of Islamic faith was doing. On the evening news, Muslim terrorists, Muslim terrorists, Muslim terrorists. Those were always connected. So when Timothy McVeigh blew up that federal building in Oklahoma, all the stuff that came out immediately afterwards was how we have to, you know, go after these different Islamic groups. When it turns out that Timothy's just a Michigander, right? He wasn't. He 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 he's a Christian. Right? Nobody called um, him a Christian terrorist. No one called him a Christian terrorist, right? And so what I'm saying is the fact that our news media has gotten so comfortable with tropes, and that it constantly builds this deep library of associations of negativity means that they are definitely co-authors in the public will, uh, you know, to tolerate certain injustices, to tolerate racial hatred. Uh, So we absolutely believe those institutions have to change. We work with those institutions to help them change, maybe to a lesser degree, but also importantly enough, I do think that philanthropy unintentionally, you know, does what people call that sort of soft form of racism, where all you do is define people by their disparities and how they lack and how they, you know, are pitiable, right? And in doing that, you know, I I, I tweeted out recently because I did the math that the $76 billion that foundations put to play each year, you know, for philanthropic purposes, that $76 billion is almost universally predicated on a deficit framing, right? Which means that each year they spend 27 times the combined budget of all Marvel major motion pictures ever created. (laughs) Each year they're spending 27 times that amount to basically stigmatize populations in order to get folks to act. Right. So that's, that's, that's a, that is an epic PR campaign, right? That's, that is an epic social shaping, social framing endeavor. And these institutions have to stop 
uh, going on that reflex and reconsider the long-term consequences of defining everyone in ways that stigmatize them. Well, I, I agree with you. And foundations, you know, nice people doing nice things for good reasons. And it ends up that we have this more fundamental challenge that we have to understand. And I do think that foundations, as they understand that this is this, these are these models that have been shaped in philanthropy. Now, of course, like you know, Grant Oliphant's a great example. You have to now that you know it, you can't unknow it, and you right. have to start to address it. And you also have to tell your friends, and you have to be good colleagues and help point out if a colleague has been deficit framing and if how they understand this stuff. I think that we just have to reshape the culture of of philanthropy as you know, have it understand it has to be kind of, you know, socially unacceptable to deficit frame somebody. And yeah. I, I, you're starting well, that, which is which is great. And I, I really appreciate it. And I just hope that folks who are listening really lean in carefully and start to think about how your organizations, if the extent to which your organizations are doing it, whether you're funding media or arts or culture that is perpetuating that. I mean, I really do believe I want to be the part of a of a future in which all voices are are considered and in which we are responding to the full experience of life instead of this very narrow idea. I love that. I love that. And what I was uh, going to add is even the concept of it being socially unacceptable, I do get that, but I, I think of it a little bit differently, which is because that, that, that socially unacceptable thing leads to lead, you know, sort of leading towards peer pressure and a little yeah. bit of shame. There's that sort of stuff. You're right. And, no, but the way I think about it is this, which is, honestly, I think it is accurate and true that almost all of us are just trying to make a better society. So our motivations are actually good ones. Our intentions are actually, you know, good ones, right? And what is happening is we've been taught to get people into the fray by yelling fire. And when you do that, of course, you scare the crap out of people. And you help them to think that whoever is associated with the fire, because when you, when you when you yell fire over and over again, but it's always the same people who are associated with it, the, then you start to not want to be around those people who seem to always be on fire, right? When we think about the, the choice between asset framing and deficit framing, a lot of us have been taught that deficit framing is the only way to motivate. But what we've already proven through the work that you know we've done in asset framing training and support and our partners, we've already proven asset framing actually still motivates people gets them to think further up, like they're actually more willing to do systems change instead of fixing situations. It raises more money. You know, we got clients who use asset framing for crowdfunding, asset framing for, you know, grant proposals, asset framing for partnerships. And it actually raises more money because people are more inclined to think that their donation slash investment actually will yield some return because a student who's aspiring to do something, right, is different from an at-risk youth in our, in our mind even if it's even if it's the same kid. <laughs> and so we're willing to give more to those who are willing, you know, doing things, who are aspiring, who are trying to achieve. And to pretend the, the, the way we're taught right now, we have to pretend like people didn't have aspirations before we showed up or like they weren't making contributions before we showed up or they weren't willing to work before we, like we have to pretend like those things are true when they're not. And then we're often surprised that when the movements start, right, whether it's Occupy or Black Lives Matter or whatever, we're surprised that they don't count us as their friends and allies when all we've been, when all we've been doing is telling bad stories about them and half-truths, right? 
So I, I honestly believe, independent of social pressure, I honestly believe once folks under can compare asset framing and deficit framing, they will see that asset framing is the way that you have greater impact, tell a fuller story, and live a more accurate narrative about who you are, like what you're trying to accomplish. And I think that's what will make it appealing. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. It also gives you somewhere to go because I'm reminded of Robert Redford in The Candidate where he gets elected and he turns to his his uh, campaign manager and says, now what? Like he's that it's it's <laughs> he wasn't building <laughs> towards anything. He was just trying to get elected. And I think that we do this all the time. We want to solve a problem. You know, we are. And then you solve the problem. You think that you solve the problem. And you have nowhere to go instead of building something for the future, I, you know, it's it's solving versus building or fixing right. versus right. versus building. And I I think that this if you want to be able to paint a picture of a of a of a, a nation that was, yeah. you know, created in liberty to provide, you know, yep. people the opportunity to be happy, then that is an aspiration that you can always work towards. And yep. uh, and uh, my last little rant and then we're going to have to go. But then it, this has opened my eyes to things like foundations that do interventions or mm -hmm. experiments, which mm -hmm. are those things. That, if you look at that language on its face, it's 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 frightening. And mm -hmm. I mean, we all we've all been associated with foundations that they think that that's OK or, that, you know, they don't realize that that is there are much better ways to express yeah. their yeah. own ideals for creating a better society. Yeah. And yeah. so I think part of that is just learning and understanding how how we could build something that is enduring rather than solving something that's wrong. And you've really just opened my eyes to this. And I I've been so excited to have this conversation because uh, because of what you're doing. This is a, a frightening but very exciting time. Yeah, true that. And uh, I just really want to uh, just thank you so much and appreciate you, Travian Shorters, uh, for coming on. Uh, it's it's really been a pleasure speaking with you. No, Eric, uh, again, thanks for having me on. And for anyone who wants to learn more about our Live on Vote Excel campaign, you can just go to www.nextnarrative.net. One of these days I'll get to uh, you buy you the, the beverage of your choice in person. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Travian Shorters. And we're back. So can we just say it again slowly? Because it's such a big idea. Asset framing. Define people by their aspirations and contributions before you define them by their challenges. That is such a big idea. And I loved, Eric, how you got through this conversation. <laughs> And you come back to trading, you're like, where did that come from? It is such <laughs> a good idea. And I was thinking about, you know, um, isn't it amazing as we've gone through these series of conversations, there's such a wealth of knowledge and insight and it gets expressed so differently by each of these guests, you know, each of yeah, the people working right. through. And for Trabian, that that mix of experiences he described brings him to this aha moment saying, wait a minute, why don't we start defining people by their aspirations and contributions? It is, it is one of the best things I think I've ever heard in a professional setting. It is such a cool idea. It's such a big idea. I mean, tell me about it. What was it? What was that like? Kind of exploring that generative part with him because it was just, where does that come from? It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. Well, yeah. Well, like I said, in the intro, I've, 
heard him talk a million times and I've been a participant, a participant in his workshop a, a, a number of times, mm. five, six, seven, eight times. I've heard Trabian talk a million times mm. and each time he talks, I learned something. So he was talking a little bit about being a technology geek. <laughs> it, it, you know, not that long ago, but before he got into, uh, before he started working at the Knight Foundation. Yeah. And he said that the concept of hacking is you take a system and you so awesome. do something that it wasn't intended to do. <laughs> so awesome. And I think to myself, well, you know, that if that isn't, and, you know, we hear hack this, hack that, hack the other. Yeah. And, and it takes him, he's, he just has this way of helping you understand how to use language, how to communicate, and how to, how to take advantage of the power of systems to do something good. And that, I just think that's so amazingly cool. And I was, as I was listening to the conversation that he and I had, which was a, a while back, but mm -hmm. uh, we were a bit backlogged mm -hmm. and we did take a little time off. It's true. So There's a lot going on. There's been a lot going on. It's, it's, been, <laughs> it's been a busy couple of months for the planet and every, and all the people in it. Uh, and I, I listened to that conversation and, and I thought I learned something again, even though I was in the conversation in the first yeah, place. <laughs> and yeah. I was going back to listen to his notion of hacking, which just reminded me that we all have this power to take advantage of language and communications and all that other stuff to make things do the things they weren't designed to do. But they could. Yeah. And that's why I think he is so brilliant. You know, I love to. There's this gracious, there's this generosity that comes out as he's even talking to you. You know, your first instinct, of course, because it's you, was to feel bad about yourself. You're like, I just feel bad about yourself. And he wouldn't let you do that. He gently brings you through that. But, I, you know, that's another thing. Guilt. I, yeah, that's right. But he lets you process I it. I blame my mother. Let's pull that forward. But even, <laughs> even, you know, we've had so many nice little introductions to this notion of how people arrive at systems thinking and systems theory. And for him, yeah, it was through that computer process, through learning how to hack things. And 95% of our decisions go around the conscious mind. 90 it's i can't i don't even know what I, at least be breathless just the conversation about right. what this means for communicators well i i was the the whole notion of the chipmunk versus the rat <laughs> which was something i i as my wife and i were, were in the you know in, in the forest and we saw this chipmunk and we go oh my god i'm having a trabian shorters moment mm. because my brain responded favorably to a rodent because it had a little white stripe. Yeah. Because I have been programmed to look favorably upon a robot, a rodent that has a white stripe, but not favor favorably upon a rodent that doesn't. Right. And that's what we do every single day. And we we but the good news is that we have the power to change that. Yeah. And that's what we all have this responsibility to change that, to stop to 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 stop uh, uh, portraying our com communities, our our friends, our neighbors, our brothers, our sisters, uh, in in negative ways, even if they're folks that we're trying to help ostensibly. Yeah, you know, which is a very paternalistic thing. I don't want to go too far down that road right now, but the idea is that people who have there 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 are a lot of folks in our community who have been systematically. Uh, denied access to the, they have been 
discriminated against. They have, and instead, we talk about folks as disadvantaged or at risk and stuff like that. And it it creates these models in our brains. And 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 it that and so then the ninety five percent of the time when you when you respond to to an image or a person or a something, your decision has been made for you almost. It it is not the product of your conscious mind, it's the product of your unconscious mind. And that's the work that we have to do to to undo that. Well, and it it, it definitely makes me wanna bring more folks that are in this space around human cognition and how it functions and how it works onto the podcast. He's 86 years old, but Daniel Kahneman would be so great to have come Uh talk to us, but, one of the things I thought too, towards the end, um, Trebian talks about the $76 billion per year that philanthropy is generating in terms of you know supporting change. And Trebian's saying that's 27 times the spend for a Marvel movie. And right. so much of it, it's being spent to stigmatize people to spur action. And what it made me think about is what a vast enterprise in learning all this actually is, isn't it? Think about that. Think about how many times that $27 billion had to be spent before someone like Trabian steps back and says, wait a minute, let's let's look at the sum of this and, and think what this means. I mean, I wonder, where's the Nobel Prize in our field for this kind of an insight? Because it's such a, a, a field moving. It's such a, it's such a profound idea and and it does you just step back and you think wow all of us so well intentioned coming i think from the right place let's you know make change let's support change but being trapped in this priming being trapped in this deficit framing sensibility wholly unaware of it until somebody like trevian steps forward and starts talking about it it's really i mean i wonder you've done his um you've done his his workshops what is that experience like like how does that process get unlocked for you when you when you go through this work with them you know more directly because i i'm like maybe everybody could sign up for the workshop you know just do it like you know a few times a year or something like that well it's interesting because the uh, he does a number of them and some of them are pretty involved mm. and you spend the first several hours learning about the brain science and you go Travian, get me to the asset framing already but he yeah. needs to do that yeah. he need you you really need to take in what the brain does and you have to really get it mm-hmm. before you can get to the when do we get the goodies and when do we get to do the fun stuff because y- you have to better understand w- why we're already programmed for uh, for what ends up happening most of the time, which is that people are dismissed or that they are deficit framed. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what the workshops I think are designed to do is to really get you deep into how this happens, why does it happen, and now finally after some time, what do you do about it? But that you know that's there. It's so valuable. I God, everybody should be should take. Travian's workshop. Well, and just listening to both of you talk about it and then think about the conversation we were going to have and all the conversations, you know, we had Travian's um, keynote at the com, you know, comnet on, it just struck me how actually challenging this conversation actually is because there's so much nuance in it. You know, there's so on the one hand, it's completely clear. Let's, let's, you know, define people by their contribution aspirations, not their, their, their challenges. What a profound idea. But I started thinking about that and wondering, is there a nuance in here that even helps you start understanding this notion of political divide even in our country? You know, like, like is, is there actually something there where 
the, it, you know, cause I keep going through the, and, and we've talked about this before, you know, the, all of the factors there, yes, there's, there are factors related to race. There's factors related to, to wealth and, and, and who has access to opportunity, et cetera. But is one of the factors, this visceral reaction that maybe some people have around this stigmatization language that you might, I might be saying something that's stigmatizing, thinking that's a way to mobilize support, but somebody else might be hearing that and they're just discounting it because the stigmatizing language keeps them away from the topic. I mean, do, what do you think? Is there, is there, <laughs> is there something in there? Well, this is fun, Kirk. We just get to <laughs> We get to give just it a couple like of this. people just hang it out. <laughs> Can we? Okay, how do we learn from Travian? How do you hack the political divide? Mm -hmm. Because that's what it sounds like you're talking about. Is how do you use these kind of understanding of brain science and cognitive whatever the heck to get people to see beyond their traditional differences? Yeah, and I think you're right. If if there are folks out there, please do this. Please hack them. <laughs> <laughs> well, study Travian and hack the political divide for good, not for evil. Well, we've that's we that is my plea to the world. But we've heard a lot of reflections around this. I mean, I'm I'm now in Cuba with you and John A. Powell, right? I mean, there's just like we've had so many reflections about the different you know work that people are doing to get over this notion of differences and you know and get to right. the notion of what's um what you know where the real commonalities are. So I do want to talk about be me a little bit, and um you know because I I also love and what Trabian is doing, it's not only the insight about, okay, this is a better way to do this, but then, okay, now that I've got this insight, how do you act on it? And these three initiatives, you know, the fellowship leadership program, you know, curating networks of black leaders to teach skills and advance, you know, a narrative defined by aspirations. I'm just, I'm, you know, it's just like whatever crib notes, whatever videos I could get my hands on. I just, I just want to, you know, be, I would just want to sit at that table, but then also teaching asset framing to the heads of social impact networks. But finally the campaign, the campaign to live, own, vote, and excel, the love campaign. Right. Yeah. It's just, and, and we've talked about this before. It's like, you know, what would you do if somebody walked into philanthropy at scale and said, I want to invest in love? And Travian right. said, this is exactly what I'm going to do. Yeah. We're going to have a national campaign so that Black people have, have the freedom to love like anybody else. And it's just, ah, I, 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 it's just, I love it. I love how it gets expressed in terms of that work plan. It seems so clear and so exciting. Well, the thing about Travian that that strikes me more than anything is his incredible grace. Mm, yeah, and he un and I I think it's just who he is. Mm -hmm. But he draw, draws you in. Yeah, and you know I start the conversation by like oh, I feel shame. Like, Man, don't like yeah. You don't have to feel shame. It's okay. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, okay. Thank right. you, Travian. Right. Thank you for making me right. feel better. But and it's obviously not about making me feel better, yeah. but it's about approaching his work in a way that brings people in. And that is something that we all can learn to do more of and better, to approach our work in ways that bring other people in so that they want to participate, that they feel like they have something to learn and something to give. And that's what makes him special. And it creates the space for all this learning to happen. The final thing that I want to comment on, the conversation that you had about the news media and the notion the news media is both co-author in the narrative around racial hatred, but also it's the co-conspirator of the cover-up. And what you just talked about, you know, Travian's ability to navigate that terrain, clarify and open up what's going on, but also create the space for the learning that can happen so that it gets better. It just seemed like so profoundly important, you know, and, and it's interesting. I kind of, 
it made me kind of wonder where that work lives relative to maybe it's it's outside of be, be me even, but you know, where that work lives in the context of the be me effort, but it just, it just seems so profoundly important. Yeah, I totally agree. And on the news side, Hey, look, if you are a member of the media impact funders, if you are, if you are funding in media, if you are an organization that's doing advocacy, working through media, Mm. these are things that you have to understand that you are, that there are some inherent biases that you have to, in one way or another kind of reconcile and that, that there are some institutional barriers that need to be gotten around or through or over or something like that, that, that this is not easy, uh, but it, it will, you, you can only do it if you really understand what you're up against and what the, just kind of the state of being is on, on this kind of work that you can't expect to come out with a better message. And all of a sudden you're going to succeed you ha- you really really have to get deep into this stuff and obviously transforming the <laughs> how news media covers issues is going to be a longer term enterprise than anyone wishes but that's what it's going to take too because y- you know these messages that's why 90 you know that's why we don't make that's why we make decisions without thinking yeah. it's because this stuff goes around our you know thinking brain yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is worth putting on the mirror in the morning. So you see it the very first thing <laughs> to find people by their aspirations and contributions before noting their challenges. It's just such a good mantra to come back to. And it's not that we don't know what the challenges, the don't fra- forget the floss. <laughs> yeah, that's your flossing. Remember framing that's is right. about what information you introduce first and, and defining people by aspirations and contributions. My goodness. Trabian, what a treat. You, what a joy to hear that. You uh, are amazing. Anything else we should say before we uh depart? No, nah, it's just it's nice to be nice to be back. We've been kind of away for a while. It's great to be back. Great to be back. Uh great to be continuing these conversations. And we'll be keeping tabs on Trabian and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with some other good stuff. We've got a lot of stuff in the can, Mr. Brown. So it's exciting. Yep. We've got a good a good counter for the year ahead of us. Full can. Excellent. Okay. Trading shorters on Let's Hear It. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show. And that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) No, no, thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) Till next time. Let's hear it.